0: Well, did you have a favorite subject in high school? What did you think of history class? I know for most people either they loved history or they hated history. And personally I loved it, but I knew several people who hated it and they I always asked, you know, why are we studying this? Who cares about what happened in Europe a thousand years ago? Yet what is the primary value of studying history? Studying history enables you to repeat past successes, but more importantly, to avoid past mistakes. For what happened before will likely happen again. As the saying goes, history repeats itself. Or as the other saying goes, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. For example, here's a good lesson from history. I'm sure you all know this one. Don't invade island countries by ship because the weather will ruin you. Everybody knows that lesson, right? You all learned that when you're really young, I'm sure. Don't invade island countries by ship because the weather will ruin you. In 1274, Kublai Khan, the grandson of Genghis Khan, sought to take over Japan, which would not submit to his rule. So he sent out a fleet of 800 ships carrying 23,000 They fought well, but they were forced to retreat by the weather. Now, a few years later, in 1281, they, he tried again. So he sent the fleet and the warriors again to take over Japan. They landed. They captured a few small islands, but once again were forced to retreat to their ships. This time, though, the fleet was struck by a massive typhoon, which the Japanese called kamikaze, which means divine wind. And the fleet was destroyed the Japanese would not be threatened by the Mongols again. Now, if only 300 years later the Spanish studied history, they could have avoided the same mistake. But I guess I guess this piece of history was destined to repeat itself. Spain's King Philip II was bent on invading England, which was a thorn in his side. So he amassed an armada of 130 massive ships ready to invade. Really, though, the purpose of the armada was to defend and escort another fleet of barges carrying an army of 16,000 soldiers to invade England. Before the invasion, the Spanish armada sat in anchor off the Spanish coast, and they were tightly packed together. The English knew there was no way their ships could attack the armada head on and win. So they took eight ships, they lit them on fire, And they sent them downwind right into the midst of this tightly packed armada. The Spanish fleet scrambled just to escape, and many of them cut anchor to flee. And with the armada scattered, the the smaller English ships could now uh, attack them one-on-one. The armada sailed north just to escape and to regroup, and, and that's where they met their demise. As they entered the North Atlantic, they were struck by a hurricane, which destroyed dozens of the vessels. Only half of the ships limped their way back to Spain, and the invasion of England never took place. All this goes to say that history repeats itself. What has been seen in the past is bound to be seen again. And if you would only look into the past, you would be enabled to see into the future. Now who knows, maybe when the Apostle Peter was just a little kid, history was his favorite subject as well, but whatever the case, he surely values the lessons history teaches. For as we come to 2 Peter chapter 2 this morning, he presents to us some valuable lessons from history. So Why don't you take your Bibles and open them now to 2 Peter chapter 2 as we continue along studying through the the book of 2 Peter into chapter 2. Only Peter does not present to us a lesson on invading island nations. But rather he brings a history lesson on God's judgment. Today, how many people do not believe that God will judge the world? Several, maybe most. After all, the wicked are prospering. As the godless find themselves getting away with their sin time and time again, they start to think to themselves that maybe God isn't watching maybe god doesn't care maybe god doesn't exist they start to believe that they will always get away with their sin that no judgment is coming yet history has escaped their notice they have failed to recall what god has already done in the past god has already judged the wicked time and time again and you can be certain that history will repeat itself. In the passage we will be looking at today, Peter refreshes our memory on God's past judgments to make the point that his future and final judgment is all the more certain. Yet this reminder is not really for us, it's for these false teachers. We've seen this many times now, so I'm sure you know well. Peter was dealing with the rise of false teachers among the churches. Notably, these false teachers denied the future judgment of God upon the world. And God is not going to judge, they said. And Christ is not returning, they said. And this whole idea of some future calamity where the world ends and, and everyone is held accountable for all everything that they've done, that's just a well-conceived myth, they said. But Peter responds to this notion now that this idea of judgment is no mere myth. And to show this, he puts forth three examples of past judgments, which together have the force of saying, where would you get that idea? Does past history escape your notice? Have you forgotten what God has already done? God has already judged the immoral, the godless, the wicked several times. What makes you think he won't do it again? So Peter presents a history lesson to warn all those who might doubt God's judgment. History will repeat itself. At the same time, Peter also includes some very encouraging and comforting news for believers. For not only will God judge the wicked, but he will also rescue the righteous. As God has done in the past, so he will do again. True believers do not need to fear the coming of judgment. Although the world may be going downhill, those who hope in God will be rescued and vindicated in the end. So let's see what Peter has to say as he gives us these history lessons this morning. Again, Second Peter chapter two, read along with me now, verses four through the middle of verse ten. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness, reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, and if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter, and if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation, and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. If you remember, Peter just gave this general introduction on who these false teachers are in verses 1 through 3. And he's going to pick up and resume that introduction to false teachers later in the chapter. But at the end of verse 3, he gave this comment on their demise. And before he gets back to introducing us to who these false teachers are, how to spot them, how to reject them, he picks up on this destruction theme, assuring the false teachers of their certain judgment and assuring the church of its certain rescue. And Peter does this by way of some history lessons. And we, we want to learn from these this morning. So from 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through the middle of verse 10, I want us to learn three history lessons showcasing the judgment of the wicked and the rescue of the righteous. Three history lessons showcasing the judgment of the wicked and the rescue of the righteous. And first, we have a lesson from the angels. That's the first lesson. A lesson from the angels. And look again at verse 4. Verse 4. Again, 4, he starts. If God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness, reserved for judgment. We can stop there. First history lesson comes from God's judgment of the angels. Angels, these the spiritual beings, were created before men, and they have their own history book. You know, the Bible records the story of man's creation, fall, redemption. Not, not the angels. We only learn of the history of the angels incidentally, here and there, bits and pieces in Scripture. What we do know, God created a multitude of these angels, spiritual beings, before he created man. They were originally created perfect, without sin. However, as we piece together scripture, we learn that one-third of the angels fell, rebelled against God's authority under the leadership of Satan himself, and sinned. They fell into sin. These fallen angels are now known in the Bible as demons. They are now given over to evil, to that which is opposed to God. Anything more about the nature, though, of that first sin of these angels, we don't know. It's not in the Bible. But in the context, Peter's not actually referring to the initial fall of the angels because after that first rebellion, God didn't cast them into hell or put them in pits of darkness. This is instead referring to their sin in the days of Noah. And Peter has talked about this sin of the angels in the days of Noah once before. If you're with us, we studied this back in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 20. And there we went through all the details of the, the sin of the angels in that text. And if you want to get the details, go online and get that sermon. We're not going to go into the details now, but I'll give you the, the, the one-minute recap. In the days before the flood, Fallen angels or demons roamed the earth, much like they did during the days of Jesus. But some of these, these most wicked of of demons, their depravity led them to take possession of human men in order that they could then ravish human women. And they created this unholy offspring together. And to God, this was crossing a line. The most wicked and depraved of the fallen angels were, were deemed unworthy to have even freedom. And God confined them to the abyss, where they wait for their final judgment. Jude refers to the same incident. Jude chapter or Jude verse six reads And angels who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode. He has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. And Peter here in Second Peter he's talking about this incident once again. He says, these angels, when they sinned, were cast into hell and committed to pits of darkness. The phrase, cast into hell, that's actually just one word in the Greek, tartarao, which is a reference to Tartarus. We studied that as well in First Peter. Tartarus, it's not the same as, as hell that we think of, you know, Gehenna, like Jesus taught about, where unbelieving humans go when they die. Rather, Tartarus, it's a special pit of of darkness reserved for the most wicked of the fallen angels. It's otherwise referred to as the abyss. It's this holding cell, this death row for, for fallen angels. The demons greatly feared being thrown into the abyss. If you remember, when Jesus encountered some of these demons, these fallen angels, they begged him not to send them into the abyss. This is that same place. It was a place of torment, total confinement, no escape. In the abyss, these fallen angels do nothing but suffer punishment and then await the final judgment when they, along with Satan, will be thrown into the lake of fire. Now this is, you could say, interesting stuff. we studied this in greater detail before, but I don't want to spend too much time on it here because Peter doesn't. Although we can gather the sin of the angels from the context, Peter doesn't even mention what sin he's talking about here. I mean, does he? Because that's not the focus. His focus here is not to give us information on how the angels sinned. That's not his goal. Rather, the goal is to show us that when they sinned, God did not spare them. When they sinned, whatever it was, God did not. Spare them. They were judged. So what is the history lesson here? Fairly simple. God will judge the wicked. Peter, he's teaching a lesson. He's arguing from the greater to the lesser. Meaning, look, if the angels who are higher and greater and mightier than man, if they were not spared by God when they sinned, What makes you think God will spare humans when they sin? If God exacted his wrath upon angels who are greater than us, what makes you think he will spare you? And for the angels, this judgment has already taken place. Many are already confined in the abyss, awaiting that final judgment. None of them have any doubts about how it's all going to end How it's all going to work out in the end. They're not wondering. They know they're doomed. They sinned. They were not spared. They were judged. And this history will repeat itself. I'll make mention of this later, but this first lesson, it's especially pertinent for those who reject Christ. Jesus is your only shield from the wrath of God. If you reject Him, you're you're naked. You have nothing standing in between you and God's just judgment. And if God wouldn't even spare the angels who are better than you, who are higher than you in, in rank, then He certainly won't spare you. This is a certain judgment and all those who sin and reject Christ will face the same certain judgment when history repeats itself. It's a lesson from the angels. We have a second lesson now, a similar lesson, from the ancient world. Number two, second history lesson here that we want to learn from. It's a lesson from the ancient world. And look at verse 5. He continues, building on this, he says, And, <coughs> essentially, if God did not spare the ancient world but preserved Noah a preacher of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly the second lesson also comes to us from the days of Noah and the flood they are both from the same time period only the first lesson dealt with the history of the angels the second lesson deals with the history of of humans not only did God not spare the angels when they sinned, but he's not spared the entire ancient world when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. The world and the time before the flood was extremely wicked. Evil truly reigned. Genesis 6, 5 reads, Of this time, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. Verse 11, Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. The chief sin of pre-flood humanity was, do you know? Violence, violence was the the main sin. We get this picture of just total anarchy, murder, rape, theft just went on unchecked. There, there was no stopping it. No one stood for righteousness. No one stood for justice. Just imagine living in a world like that. I mean, today, if someone was breaking into your house, what would you do? You might say, "I'll oh, call the cops." What if there were no cops? You know, if someone defrauded you, what would you do? You say, well, you know, I'll take them to court. What if there was no court? What if today the wicked ran through the streets causing terror? What would you do? You say, well, you know, I'll band together with my neighbors and we'll just, we'll defend ourselves. What if your neighbors were the wicked ones? That's the picture we get of this pre-fall world. It's just wickedness and violence and evil. Everywhere you look, That there was none who stood for justice. Certainly none who stood for God. And as a result, violence reigned. The earth was so stained with bloodshed that God deemed it ready to just be washed clean with water, the whole thing. So in judgment upon the world of the ungodly God brought a flood Peter reports this as you know all comes from Genesis chapter 6 through 9 this was a worldwide cataclysm in fact the word for flood in the Greek here is cataclysmos that's where we get the word cataclysm this was a devastation it's not just a little rainstorm we're talking about but the surface of the earth was literally reshaped by the flood Mountains were driven down. Valleys were raised up. The subterranean water cavities were just gushed upon the the surface of the earth, uh, reshaping it. The entire earth was covered with water, just as it was before creation. God was, in a sense, recreating. Now, just as a side note, did you know that if the earth was completely level? meaning every mountain was brought down to level and every valley was raised up, so it's all completely level. But there's enough water on earth to cover the entire surface of the earth by two miles. So people always wonder, look, it's not for a lack of water. There's enough water to cause this destruction. Indeed, that's what God did. In this scene of destruction, nothing survived. We've all seen the video clips of the the tsunami that hit Japan. And just how relatively a little bit of water just wiped away cities, towns. Nothing left. Nothing rivals the destructive force of water. Just imagine if that was worldwide. God judged the entire world and literally wiped the surface of the earth clean from their violence and wickedness. When the waters came, there was not a single hiding place for the ungodly. All were judged. And here we find a second history lesson. We, we learn from God's judgment of the angels that, that rank can't save you. and No matter how high and lofty you are, sinners will not be spared from God's judgment. But from the flood, we learn now that numbers cannot save you either. Being in the majority is no defense against God's wrath. the the power of the entire world put together could not hold back God's hand of of justice, not even even His pinking. Even though the entire world was given over to godlessness and violence, there was no safety in numbers. Being in the majority may give the wicked a greater boldness in carrying out their sin, but it will not shield them from the wrath to come. This lesson will be seen again. Our world today definitely needs this warning that the world is resembling more and more the time of the flood. More and more people are turning to that, that godlessness and violence and immorality. More people are rejecting God, turning to just their fleshly desires. They're living lives of unchecked evil, immorality. Violence. I think nothing's wrong with that. I think no judgment is coming. But Jesus Himself said, didn't He, that the last days would be like what? The days of Noah. So sadly, we are forced to expect the world is only going to get worse. Much worse. But that doesn't change this warning or this lesson from history. Be warned those who live wicked lives, will be swept away. The predicted and and planned fate of our world can be discouraging to think about. I mean, it's saddening to see the world growing darker and darker. It can even get that scary as you find yourself in the minority. Christians have, for the most part, functioned in the majority in America for most of America's history, but... The days are coming and are at hand when the majority will be the godless. Does that disturb you? Do you fear the wicked overrunning the world where there's no safe place for the church? And when thoughts and fears like that arise in your heart, you too need a reminder. Remember, even if the entire world turns against god and his people which will happen it's promised that the gates of hell can't overpower the church as jesus promised the wicked even though they're in the majority will be brought to justice and the god-fearing even though there's just a few left will be saved and don't forget that this leads us to another lesson here from the ancient world, a secondary lesson still from the ancient world. Not only does Peter teach us that history will repeat itself when it comes to the judgment of the wicked, no matter how many of them there are. He also teaches us that the righteous will be rescued no matter how few there are. For as God judged the world with a flood, at the same time, He was able to rescue and preserve Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others, his family. Genesis 6 testifies that Noah, in great contrast to the world of the wicked, was a righteous man. But what what made Noah righteous? Was he perfect? He just never sinned, right? No. Noah was not perfect. Rather, he was seen as righteous by God himself, because he walked with God in faith. And consequently, he obeyed God in faith. Genesis 6, verses 8-9 through 9 says, But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7 tells us this about Noah. By faith, Noah being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. He was righteous by faith. And Noah was a sinner just like the rest of the world that surrounded him. But he lived by faith. He was transformed by faith. Made righteous by God by faith. It's the same for us today. You know, we in the church, we're no better than those on the outside. We too are sinners deserving of judgment. What you think you're not. We deserve the exact same sentence of judgment. Judgment. The only difference is that we, by God's grace, have looked upon Jesus in faith, the same faith of of Noah and others, and that God's grace has worked in our lives. That's that's the only difference. We are not righteous on our own. God has made us righteous through faith in Christ. And because of that, we seek to live righteously all to the glory of God. You may think, well, but... I, don't know, I I think I'm pretty bad. I feel like I'm pretty bad. Maybe the weight of your sin weighs on you and you really fear that judgment that's coming your way. You think you too are going to be swept away because of the things you've done, the person you've been. Look, if you think you're bad, you're right. We all are. But God doesn't save perfect people. He saves bad people. And if you truly call out to Christ for mercy and for grace, God promises to to forgive you, to transform you, to to make you righteous, to save you. He rescues the righteous, but the righteous are those in Christ. In this manner, Noah was a righteous man. He obeyed God. He's also called a preacher of righteousness. The Old Testament doesn't say this, but it's, it's pretty obvious. As Peter says, as Noah walked, with God by faith, he lived a markedly different life than the world around him, and that that would have spoken volumes in itself. But also, as he by faith built the ark for 120 years, he surely could not have kept silent during that time. I mean, surely countless men would have approached him and questioned him, some to mock, some to question, and surely he replied with a message of judgment and escape. I mean, the ark served one function, to save people, to preserve life in the midst of a flood that was going to judge and and kill everyone. If you enter by faith, you'll live. But if you stay outside, you'll perish. For 120 years, he surely pleaded with the lost, but not a single soul listened, only Noah, his wife, three sons, their wives, eight total, survived but they didn't really survive so much as they were rescued and god preserved them without god they had no chance without god they had no warning without god they had no escape noah had to be responsible remember noah had to build the ark with his own hands but god ultimately was the one who preserved him and so it is today God will preserve and rescue his righteous ones. And this lesson from history will also repeat itself. God will never forsake his own. His children will pass through judgment unscathed. For Christ already paid their penalty. And they will arrive safely in God's kingdom. For believers, there's no greater comfort in the midst of an evil world than this lesson from history that God will rescue his own. Now we have left a third lesson, a third and final lesson from this this passage, a lesson from history. Number three, a lesson from Sodom and Gomorrah. A lesson from the angels, a lesson from the ancient world. Thirdly, a lesson from Sodom and Gomorrah. Verse 6. He continues this chain. These are all building on one another. He says, and verse 6, if he, God, condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. Stop there for now. Here we have a lesson from the ancient cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah were the two most prominent cities in the Jordan Valley plain. And before their destruction, Genesis 13 tells us that this entire region actually was extremely lush and and green and well-watered. It was was actually compared to the Garden of Eden. Just imagine this most fertile landscape. And there's no wonder why Lot, Abraham's nephew, wanted to live there. It was good land. But perhaps because of their agricultural affluence, the cities prospered. And perhaps because of their prosperity, they were greatly immoral. These cities give us one of the most depraved examples of sexual sin in the Bible. As we learn from Genesis chapters eighteen and nineteen, God visits Abraham and he tells him that he is ready and willing to judge Sodom and Gomorrah for their wickedness. God says their sin is exceedingly grave. But Abraham intercedes for the cities. And notice, Abraham never opposes the fact of God's judgment. Abraham never says, God, don't judge. No. He knows God must and should judge. But Abraham says to God, God, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? You may it never be. So after some some dialogue. God tells Abraham, okay, look, if if at least 10 righteous are found in the city, I'll spare them all. This was not meant to be. Not even 10 righteous were found. And God's judgment was coming. But God was not going to sweep away the righteous with the wicked. That's still true. So two destroying angels first visit the city of Sodom to rescue Lot. That's their first mission. Lot invites these two men into his house. It's not clear whether or not he truly knew if they were angels or or men. Not clear. But as Genesis 19.4 says, quote, The men of Sodom surrounded the house, both young and old. All the people from every quarter. So so all the men of the city just gather and they surround Lot's house. And then it says, uh, The men say, Quote, Where are the men who came to your house? Bring them out to us so that we may have relations with them. End quote. It's really shocking. Lot was confronted with this depraved, sin driven mob that was given over to literally homosexual rape. Lot goes out, he tries to turn them away, but the mob charges in, trying to force their way in the door. This is just a lust-fueled rage and frenzy at this point of of the worst kind. At this point, the two angels spring into action. they grab Lot, pull him inside, they shut the door, and they strike all the men of the city with blindness. And this is the most shocking part. It doesn't stop them. It doesn't stop them. Verse 11 says that the men, after being blinded, still groped around, trying to find the door so that they could still force their way in and have their way with these two men. I mean, what a, what a picture of their blinding, insatiable appetite for the lust of the flesh. I mean, even after being struck with blindness, they were so blinded by their sin that they still persisted in trying to take these men by force and have their way with them. And you can see, Why God was ready to judge Sodom and Gomorrah. The two angels warn Lot to get out of town lest they be swept away. Lot is ready. He believes them, but he hesitates. So the two angels literally grab Lot, his wife, their two daughters by the hand and escort them out of the city. And the angels tell them, look, leave, run, just flee this area and don't look back or you will perish. Just get out of here. So they go Lot and his two daughters heed the warning, his wife does not. She turns, she looks back, who knows, perhaps longing for the city. But nonetheless, she is killed on the spot. Sodom, Gomorrah, and in reality, all the cities of the plain, there were four cities in total, were destroyed by fire. The entire surface of the earth was just leveled and reduced to ash, for they were under God's condemnation. Nothing survived. The destruction of these two cities was so great that their location was lost forever. We don't know where they truly were. This once fertile plain was turned into a barren wasteland, not fit for life any longer. I mentioned earlier how, remember the Greek word for flood gives us our word for cataclysm? Well, the Greek word for destruction here is catastrophic. It's where we get our word for catastrophe. And that's where this was. God reduced the entire area to ash. The same word for reducing the ash was used in the ancient accounts of the eruption of Mount Vesuvius in AD 79. If you know about that, this volcano erupted. And these two ancient cities of Pompeii and Herculaneum were, they were literally burned and buried alive by this molten thick ash that rained down. It trapped its victims, suffocating them in this fiery ash, and then it petrified them forever. In 2000, my family and I, you know, we went to Europe on vacation. I was a little bit younger, and we actually visited in Italy these two cities. I went to Pompeii and Herculaneum. And they have on display the remains of people that they have excavated. You can see that them perfectly petrified in the exact stance they were, they were in, in the moment they died and were entombed by the ash. Mothers can be seen shielding their children. Men can be seen just just reaching for the sky. But the destruction was total. These cities were were buried. They were lost in time. Until just recently, they were excavated. But no one lived. And so it was with the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Only that there's nothing left. I mean, there will be no excavation of Sodom and Gomorrah, that there's nothing left. They were reduced purely to ash. They were burned off the earth. Through this judgment, because of their extreme wickedness and sexual depravity, God made an example for those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. Indeed, in the Bible, Sodom and Gomorrah are used proverbially about 20 times as a reference of God's judgment. Those who live in and for the flesh will not be spared. And this memorial of ash and destruction is the first history lesson that Peter intends us to learn from Sodom and Gomorrah. And it's really simple. This is what God does to the wicked. This is what the unrighteous and godless can expect. This warning stands for the depraved living today. You cannot pursue a course of ungodliness and escape judgment at the same time. You can't do it. No matter how deep your sin reaches, God's judgment will find you there. There's just no hiding. There's no safe place. Again, sadly, it seems that our country is creeping further and further to these these ancient standards of wickedness. Days before the flood, days of Sodom and Gomorrah where where violence, immorality, just runs and rules. Billy Graham once said, if God doesn't judge America, he's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. And I think he's right. But the lesson and the warning is this. There's no escape for the wicked, be it through water or fire. And Peter will pick up on that again in chapter 3, actually. But either way, God will judge. There's no escape. There's no escape, but there is, again, rescue. There is rescue. And this is another secondary lesson from Sodom and Gomorrah, just like the one from Noah. If you can't tell, these are all parallel lessons. Although God will certainly judge the wicked, wicked, again, he will certainly rescue the righteous. Look at verse 7 in chapter 2. He says, "And if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds." Three times in this passage Lot is referred to as righteous, which which might strike you as odd because Lot had his flaws. I mean, he hesitated to obey god when the angels came later afterwards he fell into drunkenness and immorality himself so it doesn't doesn't look that righteous i mean by no means was he perfect but again that's expected god is not in the business of finding perfect people and then saving them because then he would have no one to save God instead makes perfect and makes righteous those who come to him by faith. That's what he did with Abraham. That's what he did with Lot. Lot was a man of faith, evidenced by his treatment of the angels, evidenced by his ultimate acceptance of God's judgment, evidenced by his response to the godlessness around him. Peter says that the, the sensual conduct of these men tormented his soul. Just watching this stuff tormented him. Lot was a judge. He was a judge in Sodom. We find him in chapter 19, sitting by the city gates. That was a place of judgment. So people would come to him for their their civil judgments. And so daily he would see their sin. He would hear of their wickedness and it it just grieved him. But never did his heart grow numb to their evil. Never did he grow fond of their wickedness or start to accept it. He never grew callous to their ways. If only more Christians were like this today. Now, how many Christians are no longer bothered by the wickedness that they see in the world? I mean, we watch immorality on TV today without blinking an eye. It's not a big deal. It's just TV. But I'm sure Christians 100 years ago even would be repulsed Are the things we just we watch every day. All of us need to constantly keep in in check our consciences. Yes, we are inundated with with worldliness and, and wickedness, but has this caused your conscience to grow numb? Have you been so desensitized to what God calls evil that you think, oh, it's not that bad. It's entertaining. Like Lot, we cannot let the world drag us and our minds down into the darkness where we find ourselves actually approving of evil, either by what we watch, what we listen to, what we say, what we do. But Lot, because of his faith, God had compassion on him and rescued him. And this, again, is that secondary lesson that God will always preserve and rescue his people no matter how dark and, and depraved it gets and it was dark sodom that was a dark place god's light can reach into the darkness and pull his people out apart from god's intervention luke a lot didn't have a chance though he would have never known he would have been swept away but god was not going to let that happen he intervened he saved him the same will be true of us this history lesson will repeat itself and this brings us now to the conclusion of these three history lessons. These verses, are all conditional the whole way. And the conclusion comes in verses 9 and 10. And in case you weren't listening, in case you haven't been paying attention, Peter drives home these three history lessons, which really are, are one and the same. From these three accounts, from the angels, from the ancient world, from the cities of the plains, what do we learn? What's the lesson? Verse 9, then he says, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. And especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. I'm not sure if you picked up on it, but Peter, he doesn't give us these lessons to teach us about history. He actually doesn't care about history. He's teaching us these lessons to show us God. God is the focus of these verses. God himself actually is the focal point of all these lessons. I mean, think about this. Who is the one who did not spare the angels, who brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, and who reduced Sodom and Gomorrah to ash? Who did it? God did it. Who's the one also who, who preserved Noah and rescued Lot? God did that as well. All the way through, it's, it's God. God is the focus of every verse. And what we really learn here is two sides of the same God. We learn that God is a God of justice and God is a God of mercy. He's not one. He's not the other. He is both. First, mercy, verse 9. God knows how to rescue the godly from temptation. Temptation, is just that general word, pyrosmas, referring to just trials and tribulations. Nowhere are believers led to believe that their lives will be free from trial. And just the opposite, like we learned in 1 Peter. Trials are promised. But although you may have to pass through the fire, God will not let you be consumed. He will rescue you. I mean, look, think about Noah. He had to endure a lot. He had to build the ark. He had to gather provisions, get on board. And then he had to stay on board for the better part of a year. That was a long trial. But God preserved him all the way through and rescued him in the end. The same goes for us. The promise, it's not that we will escape death because you won't. But the promise is that we will escape the second death. And God rescues us from judgment. And no trial we go through in life can steal our salvation. There's no credit to us. We don't deserve that. It's just a credit to mercy. God is first a God of mercy. So for believers here, the the takeaway really is just to, to trust God and to rest in his mercy. God knows. He knows how to rescue his people. He knows how. He has the knowledge. He has the ability so, so trust Him. I mean, What are you going through? What's your trial right now? What, what is your difficulty in life that is just so hard? God knows. He's not forgotten you. He says wait. He says endure. He says be patient. He says persevere until the end. But He knows how to rescue His people. Surely those in the early church wondered, you know, God, why are you letting these false teachers plague us? Oh, and why for so long? You know, Deliver us. God knew. He says, wait. He says, endure. But He knows, He sees, and He will rescue His people. You may have to ride out the flood for days or months or years, but stay in the ark. Keep trusting God and resting in Him, and He will see you safely back to dry land. God is first a God of mercy. Secondly, He's also a God of justice. And he also knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. Upon death, all those who reject God's mercy in Christ go immediately to hell, where they suffer God's wrath and pay the penalty for their own sins. Like the rich man from Luke 16, there is no escape from this fate, no relief. This, as Scripture would say, is the wages of unrighteousness. But this fate is not eternal. Meaning, look, God keeps unbelievers under punishment for the day of judgment. After Christ returns, after the millennial kingdom, then there is a final judgment called the Great White Throne Judgment. There, all the wicked are judged once and for all for their evil deeds, not a single sin is forgotten. All are held accountable, thrown into the lake of fire, and that is the eternal place of punishment for those who reject God. This end is certain. Jesus himself taught more about hell than heaven because he knew the world needs to be warned. This warning resonates especially for those, verse 10, who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. This is a reference to the false teachers now and their chief sins, but it goes back to these three history lessons. Like the citizens of Sodom, they are driven by the lust of their flesh, that they follow their sinful urges wherever they go. Crossing boundaries, God says not to cross. Also, they despise authority, which we learned last week. It's a reference to them casting off Christ's Lord, the Lordship of Christ. These false teachers and unbelievers in general reject God as God in their lives. They live by their own rules. Jesus is not their sovereign Lord. But this is a very bad misstep on their part for a very real and serious judgment awaits them. God knows how to hold, to punish, to judge. Evil is not going to win in the end and everyone will be held... God is a God of mercy. God is a God of justice as well. Let me say this. Would you forget forever this sentimental view of God where he is love only? God is love. He is love. But some make him out to be only love. But he is also a God of justice. He must punish sin. A good thing he is just. And be glad, in fact, because I mean, look at all the evil in the world, even from ourselves. It is good to know that evil does not triumph in the end. Like lot, our hearts groan as evil grows larger and larger, but God knows and God deals with all evil in the end, one way or another. At the same, same time, though, don't fall off the other end of the cliff. And start thinking that God is only just. He truly is loving. You know, people always ask, how could a loving God send people to hell? And the answer is, because He's just. That's the answer, because He is just. But don't dare doubt His love. In our passage, several times, Peter had this phrase, you know, God did not spare. God did not spare the angels. God did not spare the ancient world. You know, that, that phrase, that word is used another place in Scripture, talking about another thing God did not spare. Romans 8.32. And God also did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him over for us all. This is the display of God's love. I mean, how, how is that fair? How is it fair that Jesus would die and, and suffer the wrath of God for us, that, that we could go free? It's not fair. That that's not fair, but it is merciful. And God is a God of mercy as well. God spent his just wrath on Jesus on the cross that we might live. You don't want God's justice. You want Him rather to take His justice and place it on Christ because you want His mercy. You want God's mercy, so cry out to Him for His mercy. It's there. It's free. It's available. He has made it available through Christ. So do you believe? We've seen all this talk today about God rescuing the righteous. And judging the unrighteous. But, but we're not righteous. We are not righteous. So is there any hope for us to be saved? And again, there, there's only hope in Christ to be righteous and to be saved. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God In Him. And now Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 10. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes resulting in righteousness and with the mouth a person confesses resulting in salvation. That's how it works. That's the only way to be righteous the only way to be rescued be warned Jesus is the ark and if you reject him you reject your only means of escape when the flood waters come but enter him by faith and and live look to Jesus as Lord cry out to him for mercy and and you will live God will make you righteous and rescue you don't forget this hope And that these lessons from the past guide you today and in the future. Let's pray. Lord God, we do indeed acknowledge you're a God of justice and a God of mercy. And we praise you for both. It is only right for you to justly judge the wicked. It's something you must do. You by no means will leave the guilty unpunished. And this is part of your perfection as the sovereign, almighty, all-powerful God. Lord, we deserve your justice. We we do. We are sinners, all of us. We are to our wicked in many ways, but we have been recipients of your mercy. And for this, we thank you for you are also God of, of mercy. Thank you for sending Jesus to die on the cross, to bear your wrath, your just wrath that we deserved upon him that we might live. Thank you for this forgiveness and this mercy. Help us to live now righteously. for You have made us righteous in him. Lord, our heart does go out for the lost in the world. Friends, family members, even strangers. Lord, we were once just like them. And though they are wicked, we were once blinded too. And so we pray. We pray that you would be mercy. Or you would be merciful on them, on all. Lord, we know in the end, as you say, you will be merciful upon whom you will be merciful. But our heart goes out for them. We pray for them. Lord, give us a greater compassion for the lost ourselves. And help us to reach out to them with the words of life. Help us to, to go to them, sharing the gospel, letting them know there's only one way of escape. It's through the ark of Jesus. You must enter by faith and may you save some. Bless us as we go from here. Keep these lessons in our mind. Help us to remember and take comfort and hope in the rescue that is coming for us. And for the meantime, may we endure and trust you. In your name we pray. Amen.